Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everybody, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon with a podcast about the nitty gritty truth and beauty and mess of the creative life. And today I get to talk with or share my talk with Maggie Smith. Now she is a poet, an essayist, a Twitter personality, and you may know her for her poem, Good Bones. It went viral because of, well, it's gone viral multiple times because of multiple tragedies. It is a poem about loss and the world. Maggie is also the author of the best-selling book, Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change, that started as Twitter notes to herself during her divorce and was the perfect book for the pandemic last year. Her latest collection of poems, and she's going to read a couple for us today, is called Goldenrod. I wanted to speak to Maggie for a bunch of reasons. One, I love her poetry and have for years, but I also wanted to talk to her because she had her life broken open, as so many of us, well, who hasn't, right? She made something out of it, and she continues to make something out of it, and that's part of what this conversation is about. It's such an important part of our creative work to let ourselves be affected, shaped, and in dialogue with the events of our lives and our broken hearts and our spoiled plans. Without further ado, let's dive in. Maggie Smith. Maggie, you have called yourself a recovering pessimist and your book, Keep Moving, came out of the hopeful things you wrote to yourself during your divorce on Twitter. And it made me wonder, is there a public aspect of social media that can change us for the better? I was, I was getting into that space on my own, but the, the social media aspect of it was more about aligning my public life with my private life. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. You know, because I think, you know, social media is by nature curated, you know, we Mm -hmm. choose what pictures to put up. We choose now our zoom backgrounds. Um, (laughs) We choose, you know, how, you know, we post pictures of our kids, on good days. And we post um, pictures of our houses on clean days, you know, post things about our families when things are going well, but often do not post things when they aren't. And it, and I think it, we run the risk of, you know, sort of living this dual in this dual way where in our own homes, we may be struggling, but no one else really knows because mm-hmm. from the outside, it looks like mm-hmm. we've got it all together. And and I think that's really lonely, honestly. It because, is lonely. Yeah. Then we all, we don't really realize that other people are struggling in the way that we are. So for me, it was, it was more trying to talk to myself every day, but then kind of coming clean about it by mm-hmm. posting it publicly. I've struggled with that. One of the things I talk to the writers I work with is this feeling that your voice is not yours. Mm. As someone who started in short stories and then screenplays, but found my success writing self-help books. I mean, that was not planned. (laughs) 
same. <laughs> yeah. You know, that there's this voice that can creep in that uh, one of my, one of my students called it the, um, the know-it-all voice. And there's something about that that gets reinforced in social media where that you feel farther and farther away from yourself as a person. And I think if you're not in touch with yourself as who you are as a person, it's really hard to create, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, it's even the word author, right? Author and authority are from the same root. So the idea of like, if you're the author that you get it and have it all planned out and know it, whether it's Mm -hmm. the author of a story or the author of your life, that somehow Mm -hmm. you are, you know, the omniscient narrator in charge of everything and knowing how it's all going. And, and really that's not what writing is like for me. I mean, I never know where a poem or an essay is going when I begin. And that's the pleasure for me is that it's a record of discovery. And I don't know sort of what my life is doing a lot of the time too. Like I, I'm sort of flying by the seat of my pants more and more in middle age than I thought I would be. I kind of mm-hmm. thought I would have <laughs> more more authority or authorship at this point. And now I'm like, well, actually maybe it's okay. Maybe that's authentic to be like, you know, the answer is I don't know. And maybe it's the truth for all of us, but some of us live closer to it because of the life circumstances and or careers that we have chosen. Yeah. Do you think people put poets even more up on a pedestal of you should know something special? You know, people who don't write poetry often find it confusing or sort of mysterious. Mm -hmm. And so there is a risk of, I think, seeing poets as like special people who are somehow wise oracles when really we're just you know, ordering delivery pizza and <laughs> forgetting to rinse the dishes before we put them in the dishwasher, just like everybody else. And, and I think that's the of my husband's. That's hysterical. <laughs> when we met 13 years ago after my divorce, we went out to lunch or dinner with friends and they were like, so what's the thing that, that you think is really cute about her right now? That's really going to bug you <laughs> down the road. It's like absolutely the way she loads the dishwasher. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that is a thing. <laughs> To me, part of what makes poets interesting, besides the poetry, but as you as a creative person talking about your creative process for us, is the way you pay attention. And you wrote a beautiful piece after Mary Oliver died. And you said, I learned from Mary Oliver how attention is a kind of love, how shining your mind's light on a thing, a grasshopper, a bird, a tree, is a way of showing gratitude. I learned that poems that do not need to be difficult to be intelligent, that poems can be both inspirational and investigative, that poems can be tender without being soft. I learned from her to own my wonder and to stay open to uncertainty. So I thought about that quote, Maggie, I was walking the dog the other night and the light was really amazing. And the thunderclouds, you know, the thunderclouds, you have them too. They pile up really, really high. And I went by my neighbor's yard and she has a native yard. So it's quite wild. And there was this red cactus blooming. And I thought, what would Maggie see (laughs) if she was here? Like, would she take a note? Would she take a photo? Would you slow down? Maybe, you know, it's, it's funny. I went into my kids' elementary school and worked with, I guess, I think second graders for one year and would go in, sort of do activities with them. And their curriculum that they were using actually said poets have special eyes that are like poets' eyes and they can see things in a way that other people can't. And I remember going in that first day and being like, first of all, forget what you've been taught. (laughs) 
you have poet's eyes, you little eight year olds, you know, everybody has the same ability to put their antennas up and see and feel and hear and smell and pay attention to things that maybe if we were walking and looking down at our phones and scrolling or talking on the phone or just sort of lost in our own cluttered minds, we might <laughs> overlook. I, I don't think that I see things necessarily any differently than anyone else sees them. I think maybe the difference is that my brain starts making metaphors really quickly. Oh, there are brains that make metaphors better than other brains. That's really the difference is like, I see something and I think I see exactly what everyone else sees, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this, or that is like this. And from an early age, I found myself kind of trying to train, work that muscle in my children. So I would take them to the conservatory and <laughs> take them into the orchid exhibit or whatever and say, okay, now what does that look like? Does it look like a lion's face? Like, does it, what does that remind you of? What does that smell like? What does that sound like? Because I think, I don't know, I just, I think it's one of the things that I get the most pleasure from is being able to make those connections in my mind when I see or hear something. You've used the word pleasure a couple of times. And I think that's something too that we need to pay attention to in our creative process, whatever our medium that I can certainly lose sight of and just get into that. I call it my like little, you know, I don't know, like yeah. grindy, hunched over five o'clock or six o'clock comes around. I'm like, I am a shell of a human being. <laughs> <laughs> It's work and play. And I yeah. think when I'm enjoying my writing the most, it's I'm working really hard at it. Like I may look really hunched over. People have taken pictures of me when I'm writing and then texted them to me. And it's really <laughs> funny because I look miserable. Like I'll just, I'm either staring sort of plaintively out a window or I'm like furrowed brow <laughs> scribbling on a piece of paper. I don't look like I'm having a great time, but I am because my brain is chewing on trouble and I get to spend time trying to work it out on the page. What do you mean chewing on trouble? When I'm working on, you know, whether it's a, a poem or an essay or something long form, usually there are some like questions or, or mm -hmm. something that sort of like drove me to the page in the first place. I'm not a write everyday person. So I'm not sitting down at a blank page in my notebook or at a, a blank Word document and trying to come up with a thousand words for the day, or mm -hmm. I don't think I have to write a poem today. Oh yeah, you just heard Maggie say, I do not write every day. This is something I'm super, super passionate about in my own teaching and mentoring. If you write every day because it works for you or paint every day or sing every day, or garden every day or whatever your creative processes and mediums are great. If that container works for you, fantastic. If it doesn't, if it becomes a stone around your creative heart dragging you down, you have to find your containers of work, of time, of commitment that work for you. Try things, listen to what people do here on the podcast and all the other places that you collect information, but you must run it through your own life. So I tend to scribble in my notebook when I get an idea. And it might be when I'm walking my dog, I might speak something into my phone or quickly type something into the, you know, the notes or whatever. I don't actually ever sit down to write until 
the drive is strong enough or the idea is strong enough or enough things have accrued in mm-hmm. the little notebook that they feel like they're sort of magnetized and moving toward one another and want to take shape as something bigger than just a few scraps. Um, was, that, was that a metaphor? <laughs> I think so. I, I don't know how, I mean, you cannot turn it off. That's the problem. My kids now roll their eyes. Like I'll say something and I'll be like, oh, that makes me think of, and my they'll cut me off and say, mom, we know it's a metaphor. We get it. Or recently my son was like, if I explain this as a metaphor, would then you understand it? And I thought, oh, you get my love language, you dear heart. You understand my love language. As long as he didn't say it was sarcasm. (laughs) Yeah, it was, oh, it was pretty thick. Like it was pretty thick. Like we, we know what, what you understand and it's not our math homework. So you have a new book coming out today, um, Goldenrod. Would you be willing to read a poem from it? I would be happy to. I thought maybe I would just start with the title poem, uh, Goldenrod. I'm no botanist. If you're the color of sulfur and growing at the roadside, you're Goldenrod. You don't care what I call you, whatever you were born as. You don't know your own name. But driving near Peoria, the sky pink orange, the sun bobbing at the horizon, I see everything is what it is exactly, in spite of the words I use. Mm. Black cows, barns falling in on themselves. You, dear flowers, born with a highway view, forgive me if I've mistaken you. Goldenrod, whatever your name is, you are with your own kind. Look, the meadow is a mirror full of you, your reflection repeating. Whatever you are, I see you, wild yellow, and I would let you name me. Mm. I call that the cake sound. Mm-mm. <laughs> and it's it's honestly, I love I loved hearing it. it. It like that brought me a lot of joy because one of the the hardest parts of of writing and releasing work during the pandemic and doing readings on Zoom is that you don't get that sort of audience feedback of being in a room. Um, mm-hmm. and, and seeing people and making eye contact and seeing mm-hmm. people get emotional or, or even zone out, you know, like, right, whatever right. The, you're like, Oh, I better pick up the pace here. Yeah, that's <laughs> also an important cue yes. during a poetry reading, but that, that sound, that mm sound that sounds like the, you know, what you do when you take a bite of really perfect cake, mm-hmm. that is a sound I make at poetry readings when I'm listening and I, I miss hearing it. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Can you tell us about making that poem, about the pieces accruing and magnetizing towards each other? Yeah, it started on a road trip. A lot of my poems start with movement, with my movement. So I write a lot while I'm walking, um, or when I get back from a walk, I'll hurry up and scribble things down. Hey, quick thought. If you want to think about ways to extend your creativity, like Maggie's talking about with this walk, go back us a few episodes to a bonus episode we did with Annie Murphy-Paul about her book, The Extended Mind. There's all kinds of good ideas in there. But also permission to find what works, to aerate your process, to try different things, to mix it up. You don't have to just always do it the same way. There's so much in our brains that want to conserve our resources and just keep doing things in the same narrow, 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 same, same, same way. And it can be so deadening for our creative process. So listen to how much permission Maggie gives herself. 
I write a lot from my car, ideally from the passenger seat, sometimes not. Uh, this time it was. And I just, we were, you know, driving down the highway and the way home from someplace, I think um, maybe Champaign, <laughs> Urbana. And I looked out and saw this field of flowers and thought, I wonder if I've, I've always been calling them the wrong thing. And like, what does that mean? Like, what is the, the sort of metaphorical freight of that? If you know something by a name that you've called it, and that's not what it is. And how does that, what does that, what does that mean exactly? Um, a lot of the poems in this book are concerned with naming and language and the words for things and how we know what we know. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because you don't really know, uh, at least with a, po with a book of poems, you don't really know what you're doing until you've done it. Because I write one poem at a time. I'm not writing a book. I'm writing a poem and then I write another poem. And then several years later, I print everything out and I see if I have enough of something that could be shaped together and sort of be in conversation. One of the most interesting things is seeing those sort of themes and concerns rise to the surface? Yes, I wanted to ask you this. One of my questions, do you see do you see signature themes throughout all of your books? Yeah, I mean, the book has its own sort of like microcosm, but the books are also part of what I consider sort of like my body of work, I think of as sort of an extended conversation I'm having with readers. Mm. First book, my second book, my third book, of poems and then keep moving. And now Goldenrod, I see them as this extended conversation that I'm having with myself on the page. And then when they come out, it's this conversation I'm having with readers. So, you know, people who have been reading my work since my first book came out in 2005, know that I'm sort of obsessed with language and memory mm -hmm. and family and parenting and place all of those threads have just gotten pulled through and sort of woven in different ways through pretty much everything I've written since then. There's a theme that just came out in what you were saying. There feels to me like there's deep permission mm -hmm. that you have given yourself or have always had to be curious about what you're curious about. And that's one of the things that I see stop the women writers that I work with and women creators and it stops me sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so curious about how culture, dominant culture, patriarchy has like been inside of me. Is that it? Or what is it that makes me go, oh, don't think about that. Or you're not allowed. Like it's not even a conscious thought sometimes. Yeah. You just and when I'm off. just listening to you, yeah, my, my whole heart area is going, I, I want more of that for myself and everyone listening. Yeah. Do you know where that came from? Is it? I yes. mean, it, in, a, in a way, I think in some ways becoming a poet early, it's the first genre I wrote in. I started doing it as a teenager. And so I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed permission to do anything when I was 14, frankly, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was big. And I think, you know, having poems as containers for those things, having poems as a place to put the stuff that I wouldn't have said. 
So Maggie said the word container. Container is one of my favorite words, so much so. I use it so much in my work, I, I joke I should sell Tupperware. But container, so container of time, container of materials, container of forms. We're afraid sometimes of containment as creative people. We're like, I just, I want to do everything and I want to do it all the time and I don't want to choose. But that's where we drain away the essence of making art in whatever form. Art needs containment. It needs it needs form and shape and structure, and we need it so that we can choose what to focus on and not be overwhelmed and not short circuit our brains. We need containers. I create containers on my retreats. Those are sacred containers that are powerful because someone else is creating them for us. We create containments of space to work in, containments of material, and of course, the very form, the very forms that we're working on. And I know, I mean, I know that struggle to say, no, I don't want containment, but I also know the peace that comes from feeling held by the choices that containment creates for you. So think about this. Where do your containers need refreshing, recommitment, clarity? What containers do you need to put aside for a while? Where can you give yourself containers of magic? That, I mean, that age is so precarious because you are truly so concerned about what other people think of you. And I think I was still kind of like that in my 20s even, you know, just mm -hmm. like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing versus this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet poems always have felt like a place where I can do anything. Like that's the sandbox. Like I can just go in there and play it's supposed to be strange. Like I'm allowed to be strange and frankly expected to be strange in poems. Oh, I so, love that. I'm expected to be strange. Like, right. so that's like, like permission is built into the genre. Exactly, because otherwise they're boring. The advice I usually give myself when I'm revising is make it weirder. Like go there. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, like freak yourself out a little bit. Like stop being tidy. So I wanted to get a tattoo for a really long time, but I've never known what to get. And I think I just found it. Make it weirder. What do you think? Forearm, thigh, shoulder, make it weirder. Make it weirder. You know, mm -hmm. nobody wants to read a tidy poem or maybe somebody does, but just, I don't want to be the person to write it. So that, that's why you buy a, a greeting card. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be tidy. So that's always been, even when I felt in my life personally, like I was trying to sort of blend in and shrink and not say mm -hmm. the wrong thing or wear the wrong thing or mm -hmm. date the wrong person. Mm -hmm. In my poems, I could be a mess. And, and that was really liberating. And I think only, you know, maybe in the past 10 to 15 years have I felt like I can live that too. That alignment and, thing we were talking about earlier. And right? I think that that's middle-aged for me. That is like middle-aged, yeah. Getting to a place where, I mean, especially post-kids and mm -hmm. I just, you know, like, okay, all the stuff I was afraid of maybe going wrong, a lot of that stuff did go wrong. Mm -hmm. And so now I don't actually have to tiptoe around in my own life afraid of tipping something over and it breaking because it broke. And so now I just get to kind of have my life be the sandbox more than just the poems. And that feels good. Being in charge and feeling agency on and off the page and in my life and online. And, you know, as a parent and as a person, like trying to trying to be whole. And that is one of the benefits of things breaking. It is. I mean, I, I thought the other day, if I hadn't contended with this 
I think of, of writing trouble as good trouble, like the problems I'm approaching in my work that sometimes give me fits. I still get pleasure out of dealing with that kind of trouble. And then there's like interpersonal trouble, which is the bad trouble. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes like, wh what would I be? Who would I be if I hadn't contended, if I weren't contending with that kind of trouble in my life. And sometimes I, I mourn that because I think, well, maybe I'd be more lighthearted or maybe I wouldn't be wasting so much mental energy on X or Y or Z. But at the same time, that breakage did sort of open up a lot of things for me and that I'm not tiptoeing around mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah, once the bull's been through the China shop, it's like, okay. <laughs> Which makes me want to ask you about taking care of yourself as a creator. You have had the extraordinarily strange, weird, let's use weird experience yeah. of having good bones, your poem, go viral because of tragedy, not once, but multiple times. I was telling my husband, he's like, who are you talking to today? And I'm telling him about you. And he's like, whoa, like, how does she deal with that? And I'm like, well, I'm going to ask her that. Like, how do you <laughs> deal with that? Do you kind of depersonalize it after a while? I think in some ways I have, you know, Good Bones is the only poem of mine that doesn't really feel like I wrote it anymore mm -hmm. because I see it so often mm -hmm. and I see it used in so many different ways. And it feels like public domain work in a way, mm -hmm. like it's sort of been adopted by, you know, readers all over the world. And so Meryl Streep read it. <laughs> Meryl Streep read it. Yeah. At that point I was like, whoa, my life has jumped the shark. Like I don't understand anything anymore. <laughs> that must have been so so weird. And it was on Madam Secretary. Did she read it on Madam Secretary or was it something different? Two totally different, different events. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but happening very close to, you know, the both of those things happened in the spring of 2017. And it's a surreal thing to be, you know, like a Midwestern mom who's, you know, self-employed and taking care of kids and just working on freelance stuff, you know, having dinner with her parents and sisters and nieces and nephews every Sunday in her home, you know, in her, the house she grew up in. And then to have this happen, it's like, what? Like, it's just <laughs> the kind of thing that happens to others. It's complicated for me. It's, it's a weird thing to have your success tied so directly to other people's pain. I've had a hard time with that for a long time. And luckily, I mean, there's therapy <laughs> mm -hmm. and friends and really like having conversations with people in which they said, yes, but people are sharing the poem because they're getting comfort from it or deriving hope from it. Don't feel guilt or carry some, carry that, like be proud of the thing you made because it's doing something or articulating something for someone. And so I try I try to think of it more in that way. Well, I mean, it's the truth. They are getting comfort out of it. You're naming the hard, which comes back to the theme of Goldenrod, right? Naming. Right. There's naming again. You're naming in that poem. You're naming this thing that we don't know how to name or how to be with. We resort to cliches and, and turning away. I can't take it anymore. I mean, how many times did we say that during the last <clears throat> administration? Yes. I can't take it anymore. And then the yep. pandemic, I can't take it. And you gave words to that. Well, thank you. That's yeah. kind. 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to keep our eyes and ears open. Oh, it's impossible. It's 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 our brains aren't built for it. I mean, it's just so easy to to overload and be short circuited by, uh, you know, the constant barrage of ad news and trying to sort of take in take in the sort of the terror of things, but also not let that completely crowd out your capacity to live your life with joy. <laughs> and in, in the case of good bones to parent. Oh, to show absolutely. Up people who are asking you hard questions. Yeah. I mean, a lot of even, even writing those little notes to self, that was the spark for keep moving came from me needing to be functional for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could have as, as a, as a human being, pretty much just sort of curled up in the fetal position in bed for weeks and ordered, you know, delivery meals mm-hmm and not coped. But when you have people counting on you and who are going through their own stuff, that's just not an option. So how did you take care of yourself while you were writing Keep Moving? Because Keep Moving required you to go back to the divorce and the, you know, and other painful things. And was, did you have enough distance? Because it wasn't that long, right? There was no distance. Uh, you know, I was writing Keep Moving while I was going through my divorce. Okay. Um, so there was really no distance as far as writing about that. I mean, there are some distance in writing about, you know, pregnancy loss or or mm-hmm. anxiety or some mm-hmm. some other things that I, I talk about in the book mm-hmm. um, I had more distance from. So that was more reflective. But I mean, I really spent that year writing that book sort of stewing in my own juices because I was... I was living it and writing about it in real time. <laughs> it's hard. That's so hard. It's so hard. But at the same time, I think I, I like to be busy. I'm trying to give myself permission to be less busy because the, the cult of busyness is it's a dangerous thing. Um, it is dangerous. It, can, it, is, it is dangerous it, for me too. It is. And it can be distracting. And so mm-hmm. I think if I had had a different kind of work, you know, if I had an office to go off to, to do a different kind of work, any other kind of work than writing during that time, I would have thrown myself into it and avoided really feeling and experiencing Mm -hmm. and processing what Mm -hmm. I was going through. And it would have caught up with me probably years later Mm -hmm. that I hadn't really taken the time to sit with that, really having to sit with it because it was my work to sit with it and process it was painful at the time. But now I think it actually helped I'm not going to use the word heal because that that word makes me nervous, but um, it helped me feel at a time where I think I needed to feel it and not turn away from it and mm-hmm. shove it, shove it aside. And so that was useful. And, and taking care of myself during that time was tricky. I mean, it, it does take a lot of time with friends and family and a lot of time just trying to find silly things to do when I mm-hmm. wasn't working on the book. So I took up you know, roller skating again in my forties and would turn on disco music and roller skate outside, you know, during the pandemic with my friends. And I love that. Well, cause we couldn't go do anything. It's not no. like I could travel, you know, I took up running and I, I started, um, you know, in earnest in therapy and like really tried to, to do some things that were just for me, not even in service of the kids, because so often even my therapist will say, how are you taking care of yourself? Or how are you doing? And I'll be like, well, the kids are doing well. <laughs> She's like, I didn't ask about them. They're not you. They're not an extension of your body. Like they're getting 12 hours of sleep a night. If you are getting four, we need to talk. You don't get that biosmosis through their <laughs> terrific nights of sleep as much as we wish. That's how it works. Trying to think about what makes me feel good when mm-hmm. I'm doing it. And it's mm-hmm. like, 
Cooking, surprisingly, I found I really enjoy doing. Taking long walks with loud music in my headphones and working on poems or, Mm -hmm. you know, reading books. Mm -hmm. Touch briefly when we're talking about Good Bones about the money-making side of your life. And when I look at your bio, I see there's a lot of grants, a lot of awards, a lot of freelance work. How do you balance that with writing and your own creativity and the worrying part of your brain and... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I worked in an educational publishing and in children's book publishing after graduate school. I didn't go into academia. Path has been a little unusual for a poet with an MFA. In 2011, when I got an NEA grant, I sort of thought of that as the cushion that would allow me to leave my job and start a freelance career. So I've been self-employed for 10 years, um, which is a little bit crazy. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people I, I know were like, your life seems fun, but I couldn't do it because I need to know. Could, I don't know, I couldn't go back. And again, this is sort of that, like making your life the sandbox. Like I'm at a point now where I value the freedom and flexibility of making my days look like I want them to more than I value the safety net of knowing exactly what my take-home pay is Mm -hmm. and that I have health insurance. So Mm -hmm. I... I know it's a sacrifice to give up some of that security for the flexibility, but as a parent and also as a writer, it's been so much better for me Mm -hmm. in my life to have things be more open. And so I've just been cobbling it together. It's like a mix of writing freelance stuff and editorial freelance stuff and pre-pandemic speaking gigs or traveling Mm -hmm. to teach workshops or, or give readings And so it's never the same thing every day, an average day for me. There is no average day for me, really. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, it looked a lot the same every Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, you know, some weeks look very different from others based on the projects I'm working on or if I'm at home or traveling. And I, kid I was, was a super nervous Nelly and would have freaked out at the idea of the life I have now. But I really, I really enjoy it. And it it keeps me, it keeps me on my toes. And I think in that way, it keeps me, it keeps me creative, not just in my writing, but just in the way that I'm Right. What's everything can be creative. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the, that's the goal or the hope or the possibility. Do you set aside some time every quarter or so to go, wait, well, where's the money coming from? And do I need to go out and no, no. I mean, for the reason that I can't help my kids with their math homework. um, No, I I really am not. It's, it's one of my worst qualities is how terrible I am with finances and with that kind of planning. I'm just, Mm -hmm. I'm no good at it. So I tend to just sort of like look out a couple of months and I'm like, Oh no, I'll be, I'll be okay for Mm -hmm. this. And I'm pretty good about saving. Um, And actually the pandemic has been really good for that because what, is there to spend money on mm-hmm. you can't leave your home and you're not paying for childcare. I shouldn't say I'm not, I haven't been to this point mm-hmm. much of a planner in that regard. And I've been very lucky that when things start to, to like feel like they're trickling, something has sort of always risen up and filled in where I needed it to, or I've been able to draw on a contact or Mm -hmm. sort of say, oh, I wish I could do more of this. I wonder if I know someone who Mm -hmm. 
could feed mm -hmm. some of that my way. Mm -hmm. um, some, some years, frankly, are better than other. It's ebb and flow. And I, I try not to panic when, when it's a little bit slow. You, you edit and, and consult with people in their poetry. One of the things that I find horrible is when editors, teachers kill someone's creativity <laughs> through, you know, misplaced criticism. But on the other hand, you have a job to be honest. I was talking to a friend last night who has a someone she's working with on a novel and she's feeling kind of crushed by how much is about what she needs to fix versus yep. what. And I'm like, you got to ask for more encouragement. I just wondered how you handle it. Like, how do you handle keeping that spark alive for people at the same time that you help them improve their craft? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, teaching is really hard work, I think, for that reason, because it, it requires is. a lot of a lot of energy. And I think the way I see myself as I see myself as someone who comes in and asks pointed questions and sort of mm -hmm. shows writers different options or possibilities that they might not see in the work because mm -hmm. you're too close to it. So it's like, have you thought about like why these why this title? How is it serving the poem? Why mm -hmm. this line length? Why mm -hmm. these sentence structures? Mm -hmm. Why does it begin here and end here? What would happen if the middle were here? And the I try not to be prescriptive. That's the mm -hmm. other thing. It's not my poem. So it's not my job to come in and fix it as if it were. And, and even the word fix is strange because there's nothing wrong with it. It's just how do we get it to its sort of highest potential? How do we get the poem to its sort of fully realized state? Not what I think is fully realized because it's not my work. How do we get it to where you're happy with it? And you think it's doing the aesthetic and philosophical and psychic work it came to do. Uh, it's a, a lot of questioning and a lot of like, have, what about trying this? Or, I like what you're doing here. Have you thought about trying it down here rather than like, no, 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 no. Which is a great indication too, for people listening for whatever ment mentoring you have, if it feels bad. Yeah, it shouldn't feel bad. It shouldn't feel bad. I mean, no. it, you can go ouch and you cannot like it <laughs> and you can disagree and you can get triggered. I mean, in that triggered like, no, but let me tell you what I was trying to do way, but it, you shouldn't feel defeated. No, or, or even I think criticized, especially if we're writing personal work, it's really hard not to feel like our feelings are being critiqued and our mm -hmm. thinking is being critiqued, not mm -hmm. just the words on the page. Mm -hmm. And so I try to be really sensitive about that. To me, it's really important work. And it's one of my favorite things to do is like mentoring writers at any stage, because I think we all, we all need more of that. We all need more pep talks and more, have you thought about X? Because mm -hmm. I mean, I need that. I send mm -hmm. poems off to people sometimes because there's, I think for all of us, regardless of the level that we're working at, we have a gap between the thing we've written and where we want it to be. And sometimes Always. it's a narrow gap. <laughs> it's a puddle jump. And sometimes it's a wide gap. And sometimes we can get there ourselves. And sometimes we have to put it away to kind of steep and then mm -hmm. trust our future self, whether it's in two weeks or two months or two years to know better what to do with that, to close the gap. And sometimes we need somebody else mm -hmm. to say, well, did you realize that the reason it sounds choppy is because all of your sentences are subject verb object. Mm -hmm. Have you realized that the reason it's, it's like not really working is that you've pushed like two stanzas past where this poem should end because you don't trust what? that you've actually done the work. Right. right that that you brought them to someplace. Yeah. Right. 
And so just yeah. having somebody else ask questions and even just affirm some of what you might not trust that you've done in a piece mm -hmm. of writing. You've written a, you have to be careful not to scrub the wildness out of your poetry. <laughs> Can you describe that line between clarity, if that's such a thing, I, I think it's overrated in poetry, and wildness. Do you feel it in your body? Like, how do you, how do you know it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the direction that I give to myself and, and to poets I work with, which is mm -hmm. like, make it weirder. Like, don't be afraid to scare yourself a little or get weird. You don't need to have to be able to paraphrase mm. your poems for oh, others. Oh, yes. Oh, that is such good advice. It doesn't need to be paraphrasable. Yeah. You don't actually have to explain what it means to mm -hmm. yourself or anyone. Part of giving yourself permission to be a little bit wild in your work, I think is also learning how to read differently other people's work, which is not feeling like you have to summarize. Right, or understand. <laughs> or understand. No one would say, read this novel and tell me what it means. But that's how we sometimes are taught poetry. Like, oh, read it's this how we're taught literature. It's such a mistake. It, makes, it is oh. such a mistake. Yeah. And so I, I'm much more in on the sort of like dog walk, see the cactus style of reading, which mm -hmm. is what do you notice? Mm -hmm. What choices has this writer made in this poem? And what does that add up to? Like, what does that tell you about the thematic concerns? How are those things working together? How does it make you feel? What does it make you want to write? Those to me are more interesting questions than what does it mean or what's it about? Mm -hmm. And or so, I, don't under, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. It's like you don't actually yeah. need no. to understand it. How you need to, to make the cake sound. You need to make the cake sound. Yeah. You know, I, I do think in when we're writing poems, I sometimes, or if I'm working with a poet, I think about a sort of continuum line that we slide up and down like a bead on an abacus. And on one line, it's like, mis or on one side, it's mystery. And on one side, it's clarity. In different poems live on different places on that line. And different pieces of the same poem live in different places. You mm. might really understand the first four lines and then something kind of weird happens and the bead slides further down, but maybe it slides back. And so part of making decisions and revision is like, where do you want the bead to be? And how do you want to work that? And what do you want the reading experience to be? So the thing that I'm curious about is in those moments of sliding that abacus, what's your truth telling responsibility? Art is sometimes a lie that tells the truth, right? So my feeling is I'm always sort of going with my gut when I'm in a poem. And oftentimes I find that if I revise too far toward the clarity end of the spectrum, the mm -hmm. poem becomes too tidy mm -hmm. and frankly, it becomes a little boring. And mm -hmm. maybe it's understandable. Like I could hand it to my neighbor who doesn't read poetry and she could read it and completely understand everything that I've said, in which case it might be a wonderful occasional poem or something that someone would want to read at a wedding, mm -hmm. a funeral or, or something like that. But am I happy with the work? that the poem is doing? And has something kind of been flattened or simplified in it? Or is it still texturally interesting? Still those little sparks and interesting little bits. Like I don't want to sand every splinter mm -hmm. out of a poem. Um, I want to leave some of those, you know, little talky bits or digressions or, or strange word combos that you wouldn't think really work together, but that's what makes it yours. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's often a sort of gut level response. And sometimes if I over revise and I sort of polish too much, 
I have to go back to earlier drafts, which is why I keep them all and kind of re sort of introduce myself to the original idea mm-hmm. and the, yes. the thing that dragged me to the page in the first mm-hmm. place and see maybe what I have like sanded out of the grain, you know, that really needs to be restored. And so often the final version of a poem is some compromise between draft 15 and draft two, because right. I needed to go back and sort of get some of the fire back from, right. from the earlier version, even oh, if yes. it was a little messy. Do you want to read us one more poem? I'd be happy to. One of the, the sort of Motifs, I guess, that that comes up in Goldenrod are objects that I find that my son has collected. Mm. He has always been a collector of what he calls nature treasures, acorns, rocks, flowers, Mm. bits of mulch even. Suppose that counts feathers. And so I'll find them in his pockets when I'm doing the laundry and I have Mm -hmm. to empty those things, which I'm very, after having like a couple silly putty incidents, I'm very careful (laughs) about emptying his pockets and mine. But sometimes he slips things into my pockets. So Mm -hmm. I'll put on a coat I haven't worn in a while and he will have put a little, a little gift in there for me or in my purse. Those objects come up in a few poems as sort of good luck charms in this book. And this one kind of talks directly about, about that. It's called Talisman. They look like gifts a crow might bring a human girl desperate to impress her. In the left pocket of my thrifted emerald coat, a scuffed acorn, a glassy black stone, one pink Mr. Potato Head ear. When I touch them, I can believe almost anything. Who's to say they can't keep me safe? Who's to say a bird can't court someone's daughter? But in this life, it's my son who shows his love like a creature that clever, leaving treasures for my fingers to worry against. I carry them like anything I love, until they warm in my palm, until I believe. Walking alone at night, the sky feathered blue-black and slowly folding over me, I pocket my left hand and tell myself a story about my life, a story I call talisman, a story that might end well if I tell it right. That's the sigh versus the cake sound. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's just absolutely, it gave me goosebumps to be able to see and hear you like hear the poem because I I feel like we've all been working in isolation for so long without that communal aspect, which, you know, poetry is meant to be in the air shared Mm -hmm. communally. So Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how starved I was for that until seeing your face. So thank you. Thank you so much. I, I like to ask a final question of everybody. What do you want to learn next? That is such a good question. I would like to learn peace Mm. next. I am, I'm really working. It's the, it's like the thing I wish for. If I have, if I ever get 1111 on a clock or a little feather floats down into my hand, or I find a four leaf clover, if I ever get a wish for a long time, freedom was the wish. And right now I find that peace is the wish, just peace of mind. I want to try to learn to be a little bit, to sort of vibrate at a lower frequency. <laughs> so if you, if you know how to do that, I'm all ears. I, I'm tightly wound myself. And yeah. I think the thing that I get glimpses of it when I let 
go of being me. I was talking to a friend yesterday. We hadn't talked to her a while. And he says, how's it going? I said, it's going great. When I remember I don't need to be special. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, which I yeah. think goes with the creative art, art life, that desire to create can then be toxified by our personality culture, whatever mix yes. of things to be like, I have to be outstanding or special or different or original. And when I can let the go of that, that peace comes in. But I haven't figured out how to read the news and keep, and keep <laughs> and the peace. That. Yeah, keep the peace. Yeah, that's the thing. Like I, I want to somehow find a way to squirrel back from the ocean, that feeling of standing in or right at the ocean and feeling like that perfect smallness where you feel tiny, but not insignificant, but there's no ego. There's no you, there's mm -hmm. no, like the mess of your life is completely absent or, you know, or walking in the woods, that, that kind of feeling I need, I need to find a way to get that into the life I live in this house at my computer. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. Like there's no how, ocean right there. Cause <laughs> I just don't have access to like big nature all the time, mm -hmm. but that's that kind of peace. And it, it is, it's like ego. Mm -hmm. or ego placed in context yeah you started running in your 40s I started running in my 50s I'll find it sometimes after a really hard run what I learned from one of our podcast guests Annie Murphy Paul that you put your brain into a particular state I don't yeah. think that's cheating <laughs> no that's not cheating at all I, I agree like you know meditation long a long walk a mm -hmm. really hard run where you're mm -hmm. just in your body and sort of mm -hmm. out of your mind mm -hmm. so yeah I need I, I would like to learn more of how to keep that going on the on the daily <laughs> right right on the daily yeah. I love that well Maggie it has been an absolute joy and my heart is full and I thank you so much for sharing your world with us and your poetry oh thank you this has been so much fun don't you just want to sit down and have coffee with Maggie Smith? I, she just made me grin for the entire time. What a lovely human. And her new book, Golden Rods, right by my bedside, reading and enjoying a poem every night before I go to bed. Such beautiful, beautiful poetry. Maggie, what did she give you that you want to put in your creative toolkit? There's a faith that she has and an openness and that metaphorical mind. That's what I want to play with and remember. What about you? Take it in. Take it seriously. Feed that creative fire of yours. There's a determination that we, we all need. Next week, we have a really different kind of guest, a stretch guest for me. It's Ashley Sumner. She's the co-creator of the app Quilt. It's a self-care app for women. And I got to tell you, if that's all I knew about it, I would never have had her on as a guest because I helped spur the beginning of the self-care movement in 1992 with my first book, The Woman's Comfort Book. And I don't like where a lot of the self-care movement has gone. I think it's, there's just a lot of stuff that I don't like. But Quilt app is fascinating. It's an audio only app for women to connect with each other. And what else is fascinating is how Ashley had to pivot during the pandemic from what the app originally did to what it does now. And I love those pivot conversations, as you know. It's also really fascinating because she had a picture go viral. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about being in a technology company, but not being a coder, like not fitting, not belonging and how that affects her confidence and her creativity in good and maybe not so good ways. So anyway, really different kind of conversation because I want to get out of my creative silo. I fall into these ruts of like, oh, let's talk to poets. Oh, let's talk to novelists. Oh, let's talk to mindfulness people. All the things I'm comfortable with. But how do we really feed our creativity and our inspiration? How do we actually come up with good new things 
to bring into our creative work. Well, we have to get out of our silos, our interests, our comfort spots. And so I'm forcing myself to do that. I think it's a really fascinating conversation. I grew and learned a lot and I hope you do too. But most of all, I hope you create out loud and I hope you share this show with another creator in whatever form you want, including going to jenniferloudon.com and clicking on podcast. Have a great week as you create out loud.